Yeah, first and foremost, gents, I definitely want to recognize thank you for the uh, thank you for the opportunity and for the invitation. So thank you for that. We are good to go. Cool. Well, let's dive right in, shall we, Jimbo? Yeah, we should. Hello, and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer, and I'm Jim Elliott. And today we're joined by Carl Cofield. Carl Cofield is the chair of the graduate acting program at NYU. He holds an MFA in directing from Columbia University and is on the faculty of the Yale School of Drama. He's been the Associate Artistic Director of the Classical Theater of Harlem since 2018. His directing credits include Yale Rep, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Denver Center, Cleveland Playhouse, Everyman Theater, Carter Theater, and many others. And his acting credits include the Manhattan Theater Club, Berkeley Rep Alliance, Arena Stage, the Shakespeare Theater, Intamin, Actors Theater of Louisville, Shakespeare Santa Cruz, Milwaukee Rep, Alabama Shakespeare, the list goes on and on. And he is the recipient of an NAACP Theater Award and the L.A. Drama Critics Circle Award. Welcome, Carl. Thank you. Thank you both for having me here. I'm super excited to dive in for a rich, rich conversation. It's great to have you here. Now, the first thing that, that I noticed when we were talking about the Classical Theater of Harlem, I didn't realize this. The last thing I saw at Classical Theater of Harlem was a King Lear with Andre de Shields in it. I don't know what year that would have been, but quite a while back. Yeah. And I didn't realize at the time that the Classical Theater of Harlem does not have a permanent space. No, that is correct. We're itinerant, but we've had the good fortune to perform in the Richard Rogers Amphitheater at Marcus Garvey Park, smack dab in Harlem. For the past, uh, you know, seven, eight years, we're looking to continue to make our presence felt there and, and, and to be of service of that community. And we think that's a prime, prime location for what we affectionately call our Uptown Shakespeare in the Park. Yeah. You know, uh, above 96th Street, we're giving you the classics in, in uh, much of that Joe Papp tradition and being of service to the Harlem community. So, so we're grateful to be a part of it. Uh, what are the challenges of, of working in an open, open space in Marcus Garvey Park? I imagine traffic noise and that kind of thing, but is there anything else that you discovered? Yeah, I mean, the first and foremost is that we are beholden to the weather, right? <laughs> so, you know, we're in June and July, so, you know, a thunderstorm could spring up, but I gotta tell you, you know, it, it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. I cannot tell you, how many times I have seen audiences huddle up to the front of the stage with ponchos, with umbrellas, just to have the story continue. Mm. And to me, that is the essence of a bigger conversation, which is the power of theater, the power of being in community and being together to hear stories told and to watch wonderful actors shine a light on the human condition. So to your original question, yeah, that's one of the bigger challenges, the weather. I think the ambient noise of New York City only adds to the flavor of live performance. To me, theater is like a beautiful handmade gift that you give somebody. It won't be store-bought. It won't be, you know, the Tiffany or the, you know, special crystal. It's beautiful. It's, it's got little imperfections in it, but that's what makes it truly, truly special. So hearing a helicopter buzz us, hearing a a siren, hearing a house party uh, with some groovy Stevie Wonder tunes blasting out. That only adds to the soundscape of New York and ultimately to the storytelling. So that brings me to a question, Carl. I was reading your, your list of credits and they're very, very impressive. What is your origin story as a classical theater artist? So I had the great privilege of growing up in Miami, Florida. My uncle was an actor named Clarence Thomas, not to be confused with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. But Clarence Thomas, my uncle, was an actor who was a contemporary of Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee. 
So back then in South Florida, Burt Reynolds had a dinner theater called the Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater in Jupiter, <laughs> Florida. Yep. And so my uncle would work at this theater and, you know, all the snowbirds from New York would come down. Uh, all the celebrities would come down to Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater to really stretch their muscle and do, and activate some muscles that they hadn't been able to do in TV and film and really chew on some really great parts. And my uncle would be in that mix. And at four years old, I was at the theater watching my uh, uncle and watching the other actors perform. And I got to tell you, the big thing was watching the audience's reaction, right? So it was unlike being in the comfort of my living room watching television or going to a dark movie theater and watching the actors on the screen, but being in the presence of other people, watching the actors and then pivoting and watching the audience's response in this sort of musical interaction that they were having, a call and response, if you will, was a profound thing on me, even at that early age. And I knew that I wanted to pursue a life in, in the art. Funny enough, my story starts a little bit in reverse of what a lot of traditional people would say, meaning I started in film, television, and then came to theater. So I got heavily involved in commercials. So I was the spokesperson for Burger King as a child actor. I think I did about 12 Burger King commercials. I got a chance to work on film and then on TV, episodic TV. But the big draw for me was always theater because there's something about breathing the same air being in the same space and being moved and looking around and seeing other audience members either be moved or not, that changed the lens of the art for me. So growing up in Miami at the time, you know, this is the early 80s, magnet schools and schools that started to specialize started to come online. So for those in New York, you know, you had LaGuardia, the fame school. Outside of New York, that wasn't the norm. And I entered into a golden period where change was on the horizon. So in Miami, there was a school that was coming online called New World School of the Arts. And I, uh, um, I come from a family of educators, so that we knew that that was in the pipeline. And my mom had the uh, a foresight to introduce me into that first graduating class of New World School of the Arts. I say that to say... Another one of my big passions is arts education and the impact that an educator can have on a child, a student actor. They might not even realize that you can change the trajectory of people's lives through arts education. We'll come back to that. Yeah. So in in my um, experience and coming across different you know texts and different techniques and different styles as a young actor, I was around so many wonderfully talented artists in different disciplines. So New World School of the Arts umbrellaed dance, fine art, acting, obviously. And then they had some, you know, offshoots of, of those main concentrations. You know, shout out to some of the, my classmates who were there, Katie Finneran, you know, Tony, two-time Tony Award winner, you know, Andrea Burns on Broadway right now, Robert Battle, artistic director of Alvin Ailey. It was just a really incredible melting pot and there's, there's so many more that I could mention, but it was just this really thing uh, and beautiful thing where these artists really came back and poured into us the art and the love of the art and the curiosity required and the rigor required to be an artist. Fast forward, one of the most talented people I had seen when I was a young person was a, uh, an actor by the name of Cindy Marchionda. Cindy is still a, an actor to this day, but Cindy went to the University of Miami to the theater conservatory there and not applying to any other schools. I said, if Cindy is going to that school, that is where I'm going to continue my theater education. 
the stars aligned. I had an, the ancestors provided away from me. And I did wind up at the University of Miami Theater Conservatory, which at that time was built on the North Carolina School of the Arts training model. Here again, a theme emerges. I encounter some fantastic arts educators. One man in particular named Mel Schroeder, who was a company member at the North Carolina Shakespeare Festival and you know all of these incredible theater festivals. In our third year of our conservatory was when we were scheduled to go into Shakespeare or Greeks and or Greeks. And I remember having an allergic reaction. And I said, I'm gonna leave Shakespeare alone because he hasn't messed with me and I won't mess with him. But here again, I had an arts educator who saw more in me than I saw in myself at that time and encouraged me to go forward and said, no, you can bring your story to Shakespeare and have a rich dialogue with one another. And so I bought in. From University of Miami, he persuaded me to go to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art to study over there. Had a wonderful time, but learned that there was a value in the American way of how we approached Shakespeare that was equally valid and equally as uh, holistic as the European model. Fast forward to New York. After graduating conservatory, I come to New York. And the biggest thing that had a stamp on my journey was I had the great fortune of being a company member of John Hausman's acting company. Mm. For those who are not familiar with the company, the Twitter version is John Hausman and Margot Harley took the first graduating group of Juilliard students and felt it was vitally important that they take their talents and their classical training and go out into rural areas across America and share the gospel of theater. And so what they did is they plucked um, students from top theater conservatories and Juilliard and Yale and NYU graduate acting and, and, and put us all on a bus together. And we went everywhere, high and low, Billings, Montana, San Antonio, Texas, California, Florida, and everywhere in between. And we got a chance to do classical and we also got a chance to do modern work. So we were in rep. And I know a lot of people will say, well, what is rep? Because it's, it's going, you know, there, there are not a lot of rep companies around because of the economics of what it means to be able to be a rep company. But that was a truly pivotal moment because, you know, I went from being acting Shakespeare in an educational thought exercise to really putting it into practice. So every night I was doing Henry V. And I was saying once more to the breach, dear friends. And then the next night I was doing a brand new world premiere of a Lynn Nottage play. So it was an extraordinary time and a truly valuable experience for a young actor. And I'm, I'm proud to say the acting company is still here. Uh, the new artistic director is Kent Gash, a, a gentleman who I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude, who was at Alabama Shakespeare Festival and invited me down to be a company member there many moons ago. But all of this ties in together. So I think over the course of the time we speak here, there are going to be some recurring themes that pop up. But but to your original, Garrett, the, the original question, my origin story, that's it in a, in a director's cut, abbrevi not abbreviated version. <laughs> well, I mean, I love, I love the through line of that idea of the interaction between, starting with Marcus Garvey Park, the interaction between the audience and the world around you and the actors, and then how you discovered that at four, and then all the way to the acting company spreading, as you said, the gospel of theater 
to these small rural communities. There is a there is a through line to that, as you said, and it's and it's the through line that I I know that I love, and I can't speak for Garrett, but certainly it's what makes me love live theater so much. For sure. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. So, Carl, one of the things you said struck me. You said that when you were first had the opportunity to do Shakespeare, you, you said uh, Shakespeare hasn't messed with me, and I don't want to mess with him, and that brings up a big question. We want to talk about your upcoming production of Twelfth Night. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But just on this theme of big questions surrounding Shakespeare, we recently interviewed Keith Hamilton Cobb, and he really challenged some of our assumptions about Shakespeare and classical theater. And he and some other guests, including Susan Hayward, have even questioned whether we should be performing Shakespeare in 2022 and beyond. And I know that as the Associate Artistic Director of the Classical Theater of Harlem, these questions that have been bubbling around in the background for decades, all of a sudden are coming to a head. What's what's your reaction? Well, I, I will say I'm of two points of view. For me, I would say, how are we engaging in Shakespeare in the 21st century? How? When I was coming through theater school, the great assumption was Shakespeare is so great that you can poke, prod, put it on the moon, put Shakespeare underwater. And if you were dramaturgically sound, it would still hold. And I'm a troublemaker. And I like to push theories and press against them and see if they are valid. And for me, in the 21st century America, it is vitally important that we look at it through a different prism, a more inclusive prism. So I would say, yeah, I don't know if I need to see an all-male, all-white male presenting um, version of anything. To me, it is far more richer to reflect the world that we live in and say, we're not changing the language at all, but do we get a different resonance if we see a multi-cultural uh, production. And that is the work that I'm interested in. So it takes on a new resonance if, you know, you have two actors of color, for example, in Twelfth Night, if Malvolio is a man, a Black man, and you also have Toby Belch and Mariah and everybody else being of color, then we introduce classism, right? In, in uh, a lot of cultures, especially Black culture, that's something that I think a lot of people would lean into in a different way that uh, is there, but we're choosing to investigate it through a different prism and look at it through a different lens. And here was what I would say as an educator. I think it's vitally important that we understand what's come before us, and then we accept what is useful for us moving forward, and then we can reject what we don't like. What I do think is important is that actors learn how to grapple with heightened language and thick rhetorical ideology and, and how to make your way through thorny texts. What I can say from a producerial standpoint is look at all of the work that has been riffed off of Shakespeare currently in New York, right? We're going to have Twelfth Night by the Classical Theater of Harlem. We have Fat Ham at the Public Theater, which is a riff uh, a new interpretation of Hamlet. And then we have Richard III being done in a completely different way, directed by the auteur director, Robert O'Hara. So I would say you should at least have an understanding of it, because I think an understanding of it can influence and perhaps help even new work that you will encounter or themes that resonate through to, to different work. Thank you. That's a, that's a great response. So Carl, you, you mentioned the theme of classism, and that's a hugely important theme in, in Twelfth Night. How has your exploration of this play revealed some connections between classism in the play and in contemporary society? You know, that's a great 
Great question. It's rich and it's always changing. You know, what I love about it is coming in with certain preconceived notions, but getting into a room with some really sound, smart, dramaturgically astute actors, and then they bring their mix to it. So I have been reading it for a year, putting my sort of things on it, but then they get into the room and it can be something as subtle as the way they say a word to, to give status to themselves, especially in the Malvolio track, right? Mm-hmm. How he can separate himself, although I work with Mariah in the, the underlings, I am in fact higher. And so to me, that's, as an actor, that's such a rich thing to, to lean into and to um, investigate and, and see, A, how it's, committed, uh, how it's communicated vocally, but also how it's communicated non-verbally. So what does that mean? How does that translate? Does Malvolio stand a different way? Is he standing in a different position? And all of these rich sort of Michael Chekhov psychological gesture type things can really inform how this theme can reverberate throughout the play. How does Mariah move through time and space? That's not really answering your question particularly, but that's one of the things that excites me as a director as we world build this Illyria. Because our uh, Illyria is going to be, dare I say, quite different from a lot of other Illyrias that people have come across. And that's exciting for me. And, and something that I, um, whenever I build work, I build it for the 13-year-old version of myself. And the <laughs> 13-year-old version of myself is super excited to see this Illyria. Well, so, Carl, that something that you were talking about is building your own Illyria. And your Illyria is going to be quite different. Uh, and my understanding for the Classical Theater of Harlem uh, Twelfth Night, is you going to be using VR in some of it? Is that accurate? Yeah, that's correct. So mine is set in an Afro-futuristic world. So it's it's definitely ahead of where we are in, in time now. But my um, approach to Orsino as being a, a bachelor who can have everything that he wants in, in his dukedom, to me, you know, I don't think it's that big of a stretch to look at an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos and right. say, if I could have everything I want in this world, except this one woman's adoration, how could I manifest that? And so for me, we drop into Illyria where Orsino has created the perfect, for my Star Trek fans out there, the holodeck, right? So it's a perfect <laughs> VR world. He's created the dancing, he has the hors d'oeuvres, the champagne is on ice, and then he can create a hologram of this woman. And, you know, we live in a world now where um, Siri and Google and Amazon and Alexa can almost get you there. But then there's sometimes a breakdown in something that doesn't quite do it. And so for me, when we launch into music, be the food of love, play on, the hologram starts. Oh, she's almost there. He can pipe in her perfume, Chanel number five. We smell it. It's growing great. She's almost there. And then the internet lags. <laughs> and it stops. And then, of course, as Shakespeare, the text guides us to say, enough. It's not so sweet now as it was before. But also there's a dark side to technology as we're always learning. You know, so, so how is it VR used also? Because we torture Malvolio. We torture him with VR. So what is the antithesis of the pleasure, right, would be the dark side and the pain. Malvolio mm-hmm. says, you've locked me here in this... VR world. Yeah, yeah. So we have uh, some really, I'm fortunate to work with some really brilliant 
designers. So we have projections. We have, you know, it's a it's a pretty um, pretty amazing design team. You know, that that's the type of um, Illyria I'm interested in. Well, I mean, first of all, I've always loved the name Illyria because it is so fantastical and dreamlike, and it lends itself to be anywhere. I mean, that speaks to what you were saying about Shakespeare is that it is flexible, you know, and, you know, you can poke and prod and you can put it under the seat. And I still think that's true. As an educator, I totally agree with you. Heightened language, those long rhetorical passages, and just being able, if you can get your mouth around the words of Shakespeare, everything else is, I call it the Olympics of, of acting. Back to Twelfth Night, the other thing that I hear is, that, you know, as we know, Shakespeare liked to cross-dress his characters. Uh, and the pants rolls, uh, Viola is a pants roll. It's, that takes on a really interesting meaning in today's day and age. And how, how are you addressing that at all with Twelfth Night or? You know, I think, I think here again, I think Shakespeare is ahead of his time. Like it, he sort of like envisioned this world of what would happen. Here's where I stand on that. I think Shakespeare is very clear and very astute because we have Viola basically birthed from the sea. She washes up on shore and her first assessment is where am I? What am I going to do? And then her wit and her mind work so quickly to assess the situation and realize I'm in danger as a woman here. So with that quick assessment, she fully comes to realize I need to change how I am viewed, how I am seen, right? What else about this world of Illyria? We quickly understand that Illyria is a world that has a currency for music and wit. If you are in possession of these two commodities, you can excel. And mm -hmm. she's a master at wit. Mm -hmm. The only person, in my humble opinion, who sees, going back to that recurring theme of seeing and really being seen, is Festy. Festy is blessed in both of these currencies. And in my understanding, in my dramaturgy, gives him access to two very distinct houses, Olivia's and Orsino's court. He seemingly can go anywhere he wants because he's versed in that. Any other person is stopped in their tracks at the gate. So the, the cross-dressing part for me is something that I didn't lean too heavily in, but really focused on realizing that there's a danger in this world to be seen as a single woman. And I think that's still very true, unfortunately, even today. Yep. That will resonate with certain audiences. Mm -hmm. That if I present a certain way, I am um, in less danger. Well, yeah. And so the danger of the world causes her to make choices, one of which is dressing like a man. Right. Or presenting, yes, presenting in a certain way. Right. I, think, I, I love the way you phrase that, Carl, um, presenting in a certain way. And I think that that's, that, that makes for just a much richer way of looking at it as opposed to pigeonholing it into like, I have to dress like a man. So it sounds like you have, you have a thing for Malvolio. Tell me about that. Well, you know, I think there's, as you get to know Malvolio even more, you know, you can play him as sort of just the clown or, you know, whatever. But I think it's much richer to look at him holistically and say, you know, when you get to that moment where he says, why did you do this to me? I was just trying to do my job. Yeah. That can land in a, a variety of ways. But I think if it's done right, it has the potential to be heartbreaking. Absolutely. And what's fascinating to me at the end of this comedy is we have some, some marriages as usual, right? But we also have some people who are left out in the cold. I mean, and who have been taken advantage of or acted like, so there's Malvolio, there's Aguicic, 
who's been used and just tossed. And then there there is Feste. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say for Malvolio, of the three that you mentioned, I think this is probably the newest. I don't want to prescribe it, but I think this is the newest feeling for him. He's never felt this way. I mean, I think that, you know, you can craft his exit a thousand different ways to tell a thousand different stories. Mm-hmm. You know, is there's one version, does he run off in tears? Does he stride off? Does he return with a weapon? Like you can, you can craft it a thousand different ways and achieve, you know, storytelling. Festy for me is, is, is interesting too, because I think Festy, at least in my understanding of the character is a loner yeah. and sort of drifts and really takes a really mean turn and says, I did it because I could, because it was fun. Yeah. I bullied you because I could. And, you know, when I look at Feste, you know, I, I really think of, you know, you marvel at, at the wit and the pithy responses, but it's like having dinner with Richard Cryer, George Carlin, Lenny Bruce. When you see him, it's great. I don't know if I want to have a three-hour dinner with him because it, it has the potential to get pretty not as fun as i imagine it could be dangerous it could be dangerous i'm just saying yeah okay who do you not want at your dinner table yeah because you know at first the first 10 minutes is going to be great telling jokes but then when you drill down in it they live in a probably a not so bright place down deep yeah so i think that that's an interesting interesting take uh the vr sounds fascinating and i believe you are interested in talking about act one scene five a little bit yeah. Act one, scene five. You... Yeah, when they get down to sort of brass tacks, um, re- recurring theme of being able to really see people. Yeah. Uh, when we get into the honorable lady of the house, which is she? And they're they're hidden behind veils. It's Vi- it's Olivia and, and uh, Mariah are hidden. Exactly. So, so Vi- Viola is not only a stranger in a strange land, it's, she's doubled down because she's now doesn't really know who she's supposed to talk to. Right. So the confusion, but here again, the wit kicks in and she's able to ascertain who she needs to talk to, but then it probes even deeper because later on in the text, she says, I see you for what you are, right? And then we start really seeing the essence of people. No matter how much uh, artifice is put on, makeup or whatnot, Viola is able to drill down, identify, go off script, to, to go back to her wit in being able to improvise on the spot and not miss a beat, I think speaks to her exquisite intelligence and adaptability, which I think for a, a lone person in a strange land is a huge survival skill. Absolutely. I also think it's an interesting scene because she's advocating for someone's love for the person that she's in love with. Brilliant. And so she's caught between a rock and a hard place in that way as well. Yeah. Um, is there a particular part of it that you want to read? Do you want to read from like, now, sir, what is your text? Or you want to drop down a little bit? Let's see. Let's see. Um, Olivia sort of says, oh, sir, I will not be so hard-hearted. I will give out diverse schedules of my beauty. I shall be inventoried in every particle utensil labeled to my will as item to lips, different red and item to gray, blah, blah, blah. And then we get to Viola's response, which to me is the catalyst for all of it. So looking here at Viola, beginning with, I see you what you are. You're too proud. But if you were the devil, you're fair. My Lord and master loves you. 
oh, such love could not be recompensed, but you were crowned with the non-parallel beauty. How does he love me? And she says, with adorations, fetal tears, with groans that thunder love, with sighs of fire. She said, your Lord does know my mind. I cannot love him. Yeah, I suppose I'm virtuous and know I'm noble, of great estate, of fresh and stainless youth. And voices well divulged, free, learned, and valid, and in a dimension, shape of nature, as gracious person. But yet, I cannot love him. He might have took his answer long ago. And here we get to my favorite parts when Viola starts talking about what true love is and what she would do. If I did love you in my master's flame with such a suffering, such a deadly life, in your denial, I would find no sense. I would not understand it. Why? What would, you? what would you? And she says, make me a willow cabin at your gate and call upon my soul within the house. Write loyal cantons of contended love and sing them loud even in the dead of night. Halloo your name to the reverberant hills and make the babbling gossip of the air cry out, Olivia. Oh, you should not rest between the elements of the air and earth, but you should pity me. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, to me, that is just the bee's knees. I mean, it's a great description of love, and given her situation, it's, it's a great thing for an actor to play. For sure. And to, again, to your point, after she says that, Olivia's language changes completely. I mean, listen, if we're just studying it, right, Olivia has been very articulate up to this point, yeah. speaking in massive phrases. She's thunderstruck and starts almost in monosyllabic terms, yeah. She's speaking like a sentence here. She is just gobsmacked yeah. at the brilliance of this young person. And she's, you might do much. Yeah. That's, all, that's all she can come up with. Yeah, <laughs> just super, super cool. Yeah. And then the, the, to, to me, the mirror of it, is when Orsino is going on about how men love. Right. And then Viola has to check him. Yeah, he's, and he's saying it to the woman who loves him, even though yeah. he Yeah. And then she's able to weave this story so well and keep him on the hook that something happens in that moment too. Yeah. But yeah, die, I mean, thy sister of your love, my boy. I'm the only son or daughter, whatever she says. Right. right. Well, and then, the, happens. yeah, he feels a little, he's like, wait a minute. What, what's going on with me here? Yeah, what <laughs> like, am I feeling? Whoa, I shouldn't be feeling this. Yeah, it's rich. And it sounds like what you're doing at the Classical Theater of Harlem, so many delightful things that you're bringing to it from your perspective, that it's just going to be just a, a beautiful, rich experience for those people who are attending. it. We hope so. You know, I, I don't need to, to put too fine of a period on it. You know, we're coming out of some dark times. And the privilege to gather again, to be in community, to laugh, to cry together is something that, you know, I don't want to make too light, but that's some medicine. That's some, some medicine for our souls that we all need. And to be able to serve in a small capacity, our community in Harlem and, and New York at large is a, is a real privilege. And I don't want to, to overlook that or make too small of a point about that. That's, that's a real privilege. It is, absolutely. And it goes back to those formative years of yours sitting in the audience at the Burt Reynolds Theater and seeing that community. And I think that that's, you know, needed in this day and age. It's one thing to sit in your room and watch Netflix. It's another thing to go to a theater and have three people behind you, four people in front of you, and their reactions are different than yours. 
and challenging to you perhaps or uplifting. What, what else is going on with the Classical Theater of Harlem this summer? It's Twelfth Night. Is there anything else happening? Twelfth Night is our biggest thing. You know, we begin rehearsals uh, June 6th, and then we open July 7th, I believe. You can, you know, check out all the information at cthnyc.org, cthnyc.org. And we're really looking forward to, to getting back to it. We have an extraordinary cast. We have extraordinary designers. Now we want those extraordinary audience members to come pack it. It's completely free. There are no barriers to entry. If you show up, you will see our production. Afro-futuristic Twelfth Night at the Classical Theater of Harlem. This That's right. Complete with virtual reality and the ambient sounds of New York City. That's right. To add a little more flavor. Yeah. Excellent. Well, this sounds fantastic, Carl, and thank you for joining us on The State of Shakespeare. It's been a real pleasure to hear your thoughts. Pleasure's mine. Thanks for the invitation. Carl, thank you so much. Pleasure's mine. Thank you. Hope to see you soon. And break legs with your production. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. So yeah, as an educator, how's it going for you? What you said earlier is my entire thesis on on training these, these students, which is American Shakespeare can be done and is vital. Only, though, if we allow ourselves to be American in approaching Shakespeare. Sometimes the results are just astonishingly beautiful. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. When, when that permission is given, extraordinary things can happen. Magic can happen. Yeah. And for me, when I work with um, actors, too, and give them permission, that not everything in Shakespeare is precious. Let's be clear about that. Yeah, no. precious. It can be dirty. It can be... Don't don't hold it in such high esteem that we're scared to step into it. Treat it like you would. I don't know. Let's do an exercise. Treat it like you would. I don't know. A, a, a mammoth. Yeah. You know, and let's see what happens, because I think that's closer to what it is. I couldn't agree more. It's just it's just that they get freaked out about the language and the words. And but if you just it, I mean, obviously, you have to do the work of understanding the language. Right. That's that's the extra hurdle you have approaching Shakespeare. But once you understand what you're saying. Bring yourself to it. Sky's the limit. Then we do everything that we're trained to do. Yep. Operative words, thinking in thoughts, no midline pauses, you know, all the basic stuff that, uh, but then when you put your, your true self into it and you really stand in it, it just hits differently. It just hits differently. If you got a kid from the Bronx, how does this happen in a Bronx barbershop? Show me that version. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to in like, you know, Elsinore, which right. is, how do you, how, I don't know what, Elsinore is, but no, 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 no. You know, when I had the privilege of working at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, you know, that's what I was interested in. My thesis on that was, you know, uh, before Henry V becomes Henry V, he learns right between these two fathers, one being Falstaff, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, mine was, um, you know, does he learn from a black man, a la Elvis? They say Elvis learned the music from this black man mm-hmm. later in his life. You know, he's been known to make some very racist comments. Mm-hmm. To me, that encapsulated the whole moment when Henry V ascends to the throne and you're at the coronation and, and Falstaff is there and he says, I know thee not, old man. Yep. And I think when we introduced it to our company, people understood that and they were like, oh, that's how he's thinking about it? Yeah. <laughs> Again, that's the, the human nature. And, and, you know, I think, how are you, how's it going as an educator these days with all the things that are going on in education? It's a challenge, as you know. It's yeah. a challenge. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to bring all of my diversity of students back to the idea that it's about being human. And let's explore it from that perspective. 
first. And then we can explore it in the different avenues that you want to explore. But let's start as human beings. Sounds easy enough, doesn't it? No, but it's not. It doesn't <laughs> quite work all the time. Yeah. And, you know, we're at a real crossroads in, in our actor training, in the world, arts. And uh, I get it. I get it. But I, I'm not a proponent of throwing the baby out with the bathwater or cutting your nose off to spite your face. Right. So I think all of these are just tools. If, you're, if they're helpful, embrace them. But you should interact with them. You can reject them later. Right. But I would posit that it's good to have some extra tools in your bag. You never know. You don't. You don't. And it just increases your, your knowledge level, which increases your confidence level, which increases... Yeah, it's a really interesting time. I'd love to get you back in five years and see where we're at. For sure. No, I'd, I'd, I'd love that. And to compare notes and, uh, you know, as we carry on the work of training actors, which is, uh, here again, privilege. That's a great privilege. Well, Carl, again, thank you. This has been delightful. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.